Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. St. James Place is well known as the largest writer of EIS and BCT business. We get Luke Barnett on to discuss how they select products and build their panels. We chat about criteria that they use and the challenges of the current market, especially the fast selling of BCT offers. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we are joined by Luke Barnett, who is Head of Tax Advantage Strategies at St. James Place Wealth Management. Welcome to the podcast, Luke. Thanks, Brian. Nice to be here. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in venture capital? Sure. No, it, it all started around uh, probably about five years ago now when I started working in the tax advantage space and started looking at EIS and BCT products. And I guess, you know, most of the, the I became more heavily involved, I guess, when the when the rules changed with the, the patient cover review and, and, you know, examinations eventually became much more important. Uh-huh. Um, and I've been doing it, you know, through my role within the tax advantage market ever since. I mean, probably everybody listening to this knows who St. James Place are, but for, for, for the one or two people who don't, let's give them a bit of an idea about who St. James Place are and what they do and what your role is there. Sure, absolutely. I, I, as you say, I'm sure most people would have heard of St. James's Place, but but for a bit of context, it's it's one of the UK's largest private client wealth management firms. Um, it currently has just over 150 billion in asset management and constituents of the 4100. So it's a pretty big company and they provide uh, private client advice uh, across you know the whole spectrum of, of, of offers, which, which any kind of wealth manager might do. And my role is, as head of tax advantage strategies is to oversee the, the tax advantage panel and proposition that, that St. James's Place offers to, to its clients. Excellent. And I think St. James Place are one of the largest, if not the largest writer of business in the area. Are you able to give us any statistics on that? Or Yeah, yeah we, we are the, the largest distributor. I think we have in the space about 2.7 billion in AUM across the tax advantage market, so across the EIS, VST and BR. Um, and, you know, obviously we, we, we write tens of millions uh, of business in the space across the, the three products. And interesting, I guess, just for anecdotally, VCTs have, have, have started to become one of the, one of the largest um, pieces of business. So I think it's pretty, pretty relevant to, to this conversation. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, because I think in the past, business relief was maybe a bigger area, but... Um... Yeah. yeah, I mean, it still is. Business relief still is, is the biggest area. Uh, it's probably about half of the, the tax advantage AUM. And it was a case that EIS was 25 and 25 VCT, but it's coming more towards you know 30, 20 VCT, and it's probably going to go that keep going that way, seeing as uh-huh. based on what we've seen in the past uh, past couple of weeks, months. Yes, well, I, I, as we were talking beforehand, VCT market's been incredibly hot recently, so that's um, yeah. interesting challenges. We'll maybe get onto that actually later on. So, as you said, your responsibility at SGP, sorry, I'm going to call it SAP rather than James Place for the, anyone who's wondering what we're talking on at that. So, your responsibility is for panel building. And I thought it would be a good idea to talk about your thoughts on how to build a panel or how you build a panel and to some degree what SJP does, subject to sort of business confidentiality. And I think in your previous role, you were helping clients build panels as well. 
So I thought we'd maybe start with thinking about products. And so when you're thinking about the products you want to have on the panel, what's the most important thing for you or the most important things? Sure. Yeah, no, I think it's there are a couple of elements to consider. And, you know, when we're building a panel, we want the best products in the market. And we just think of the process that we normally go through you know, starting at the top, we're looking at the at the manager of the product itself. So, you know, the, the firm that runs it. And clearly when you, you know, as a third party, you're, you're exposed to an element of counterparty risk. So we want to understand how established the manager is, uh, the governance process that it has, how robust its internal kind of investment committee processes are, uh, how they manage conflicts, uh, how experienced the management team on how stable the business is. And then importantly, you know, the financial position of the business to make sure that it's going to be around for for the next five to seven years, because that's how long these these investments can you know tend tend to be. So that's the, that's the first kind of stepping stone to make sure that that we're working with a, a robust uh, manager. And, and, and presumably for SGP, you're looking at the larger managers. So is that a big hurdle for most of these guys, or is that something that you actually see quite a few people having issues with? No, it, it, I think it's we we probably have it more so than others in the sense that I think in anyone who's building a panel should always consider the the stability and governance and of the firm. But to your point, given given the level of flows that we've mentioned that we that we tend to to, to kind of write in the space, we do need to see a manager of a certain size in, in terms of AUM, and it depends on the product. They can be sort of hard target. It's, it's you know we we consider it in, in each piece, but it is definitely a consideration for us. It's difficult for us to, to onboard new managers if they are small on the smaller end because we we could become the largest investor very quickly, and we don't want that kind of counterparty risk uh, as a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think the market's aware that there has been an issue at least one product uh, a few before your time with SGP. I guess. <laughs> yes, there have been issues. So, you know, so, so I guess you know that that's the first point. And then, you know, we want to look at at the team that's running the strategy. Clearly, we want there should be an established track record of the team working together, but also have have a track record of, of executing and running that strategy. Um, you know, simple things, you know, when you're doing an operational diligence, if there's a lot of attrition within the team, might speak to bigger problems. So we want, you know, we want to see some stability in the leadership and in the processes that they have. And then obviously, you know, really important is the strategy itself. And a track record of of being able to deliver that. So, you know, a lot of managers can have a, a pretty robust strategy on paper in terms of the the companies they're looking to target and the stages of development, et cetera. But really, what we want to see is some track record of of the team executing that strategy, you know, consistently. So, you know, what's their track record of of sourcing deal flow? How do they source deal flow? And um, who are the types of 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 co investors that they work with as a almost a proxy for their brand within the market? Um, and ultimately, their ability to source those companies, manage them through the investment period, and, and generate an exit. That's probably one of the, one of the the most important uh, factors that we look at. Can I can I just pick up a point there on on strategy and and perhaps homogeneity or lack lack of homogeneity in that? It seems to me that the market has converged a little bit. If I think back to where it was five years ago. It's not that everyone's identical, but there's a lot more similarity between the sorts of companies that different managers are investing in now compared to five years ago. How hard do you think it is to distinguish between or get distinct strategies? I think it's a really good point. I mean, clearly, the way that the rules are for ES and VCT and the risk of capital, it, it kind of does channel everyone towards a certain type of business. And and given 
that the greatest growth potential tends to be, you know, tech enabled or tech businesses. And so I think of, you know, probably that's what you're referring to. A lot of managers focus companies in that space. So yes, there is some homogeneity in that sense. But but what we what we can see is is specific. There can be focuses within the, you know, the, there are a lot of end markets within tech that you that you can look at. But also, some managers might target different stages of development. So some might look at pre-revenue. Some might look at larger uh, ticket sizes, and if they if they are targeting larger ticket sizes, they tend to be larger managers. And um, you know, as an example, you know, for example, Draper Esprit, you know, they have a they invest off balance sheet and they have a large institutional fund, and that allows them EIS and VC investors to get access to to some larger deals, which some smaller managers might not get into. And then you know, there there are other things such as you know, Parkwalk has um, access to some you know, university spin-outs and they are probably the most active in that space. Um, and then you know, within the range of, of tech investors, there's some that focus you know, deep tech or, or I guess AI and others that might, that might target tech-enabled businesses. And I think there's a, some distinction to be made there. So I think if, if you know, whilst the, the broadly it's, it's a, it's, they, they, there is a similar sector, there are, there are ways to try and you know, find some differentiations uh, for, for a panel and, and should be looked at. Yeah, and and I think something else, just just to just to kind of two two more points, I think on on this is that clearly because these are private companies, we want to see a manager that can actively work with these companies and has the ability to work with founders and develop these these companies to exit. Because this this generally isn't isn't really passive capital. They need to be able to you know build relationships with the management and and bring expertise to the company that that they might not have without with other investors so it's really important that that that's um considered and and part of that i think is is the the team's reputation in the market so you know are they able to work you know if they can they find co-investment with some of the larger managers or or, or larger houses as a you know because that that means that they can they'll have deep pockets and and be able to continue to fund these businesses so reputation in the market's important and then, and then fees, I think, should also always be considered. Um, you know, fees can be a contentious point, I guess. You know, whether you charge the investor or the investee company, and which is the better, the better outcome. But generally, we want you know a, a fair and transparent fee structure, at the very least, I think, uh, for this market. Yeah, and 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 you you mentioned the point about what, you know uh, fairness. You know, and one of the issues this sector, I think, wrestles with is that it's just more expensive to invest in it than it compared to a mutual fund. In terms of when your your partners are actually out selling these products, is that a well appreciated fact, or how how much does the cost thing really figure within the ultimate decision decision? That's a, that's a good question. You know, I, I can't speak for partners when they when they're having these discussions, but I do think that clearly, you know, if you think of a you know a mutual fund or an OIC, that where, where there's much larger scale and they can lower the cost. The costs are high, um, and I think it is it's you know I guess the onus is on on the advisor, the partner, to ensure that you know to educate the investors to why it's expensive, um, and and you know a lot of it goes back to what I mentioned in terms of the cost to the manager to actually execute the strategy by sitting down with these companies, helping them develop their marketing strategies or source expertise to help them, you know, build up the business. And and also the, the size of the investment is not that large. So, you know, if you're a smaller manager, you you need to take fees to keep the lights on, you know, as you mm-hmm. build out your strategy and and before you get any any fees from exits and things like that. So 
it is inherently more expensive than other types of strategies. And I think that's that's probably common for other private markets as well. Um, but because we are much at the earlier stage, the, the, you know, we can't get the benefits of scale that's, that, that perhaps larger managers or, or, or at least managers operating in other areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you see any issues? You mentioned transparency. It's, again, it's an area that I know our sector has kind of wrestled with for a while. What issues do you see around transparency at the moment? Is that getting better or worse, do you think? Yeah, it's. I, I'd like to think there's pressure from the likes of, you know, the reviewers such as yourself and NJ Hudson and MyCap and, and um, Tax Efficient Review to, to ensure that managers are more transparent. I think, you know, seeing fees like the right to charge, et cetera, without explicitly stating those fees is, is frustrating. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully EISA Association and, and similar associations can put more pressure on managers to be more transparent in that regard. I think certainly as part of our process, we, you know, we try and, and, and push managers to tell us the level of fees that they're charging. Because I think you know, obviously, investor knows what they're getting charged because it's coming out of their out of their pocket. But but what's not clear is what's being charged to companies and mm-hmm. other fees, which which aren't necessarily directly advertised. And I think generally, I think that the industry is trying to 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 address it, but there's still, I think, lots of work to be done in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a discussion with the manager last year where they say, "Oh yes, we take sector average fees from companies." I'm like, well, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it's just a sector average. If we didn't, if we weren't getting that, we wouldn't get the deals. Yeah. Well, exactly. So you mentioned a lot about operational support there. So in terms of, you know, in terms of the team, are you looking for operational experience with the team? Are you looking for corporate finance ability within the team? How, you know, because that's that's the other thing that people often talk about. Um, yeah. How how do you look at that? I think I think that that kind of should, in my mind, speak part and parcel with the strategy because there are certain managers that are, uh, I guess, more of a corporate finance background, and so they're almost deal makers, and they're looking for you know val- a valuable investment where they are able to get attractive terms and they're very good at negotiating those elements, and then sourcing the, the re- relevant people to come and help the business, um, and as you would with I guess other other types of of corporate finance type tra- transactions. And so that you know, and and I think that that speaks to the strategy, and that 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 can be appealing. But then there's you know, if you you think of a true venture investor, where they are working with founders, I think that 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 is something we look for. Not that we you know we don't rule out the other strategy, but I think if if you're looking at venture, we do want to see you know experienced venture investors who have the network, who have worked with multiple founders, have maybe founded businesses themselves so that they can, you know, running an early startup is different to running a, a large corporate where you have all the, you know, things that maybe, you know, I'm not a, I haven't started a company admittedly, so I, I wouldn't know the issues that, that come about, but you need to know that experience to be able to to get the company to to a point of sale. So I think it's, it is really important that, that you know, as a venture investor, you have the operational capacity and ability to, to help the companies grow. Uh-huh. Yeah, presumably even those with the operational network are still think, or at least with the operational ability within the team, are still going to look at their network at various points of support. Yeah, that, that's true. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of managers talk about venture partners or um, syndicates, I guess, and things like that. And that that is important. And that, that that's kind of, 
where we where we come to a point where we always ask how these people are incentivized because you know, are they paid a fee? Are they are they invested in the company and it can bring about conflict? So yes, it's important and, and, and it's a normal practice, I think, to have a venture partner, but we also, also want to know how they're aligned and, and um, how they're being remunerated, I guess, to, to offer those services uh-huh. uh, in, in those instances. So, so give an example of a circumstance where that might be an issue. So if, if let's say a manager worked with a syndicate and in some instances, venture partners bring deals to a manager. There's a conflict there in the sense that, you know, it might be a, almost a market for lemons where they're only bringing certain deals where they can't get they can't get money elsewhere, mm-hmm. or they're bringing this deal to the manager because they have they invested in themselves perhaps in different terms. So there's there's conflicts there that need to be managed carefully. That that they are bringing the best deals and the rate the correct arrangements are in place. And if they are invested into the company, they invest on the same terms. As all other all, all other uh, investors, so the, the same level of, of of kind of oversight is provided to 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 those companies. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. You don't want them cutting in front of the queue, as it were. No, um, at least not without taking additional risk. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think yeah. Sometimes you see venture partners who've been invested for a year or eighteen months, and the company's developed, and they can't do the next round themselves, which I think is is much more acceptable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you mentioned track record and you sort of talk about investing. How do you think about track records for exits? Because I think that's one area that I struggle with and I think the industry struggles with because the the records are thin, I think, charitably. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's ideally, you know, clearly you'd like to see, you know, three or five year track record of, of positive exits, you know, before you can really get comfort in someone executing the strategy. And I think for us, from SJP's perspective, it's probably, you know, maybe we put more weight in it than others can afford to. Simply, again, going back to the point where we, we allocate a lot of money to the space. So we, we'd need to have comfort uh, in the managers that we work with. So it's really important to us. Um, I mean, there are managers, you know, there, there are managers that have been doing pre, pre to uh, the, the changing the rules, you know, I guess uh, MMC, Draper, Parkwalk, uh, Mercia, a lot of those managers have been running growth strategies for for a number of years and have started uh-huh. to generate the, that track uh-huh. record. And I think, you know, it for new entrants, it's it's difficult. It 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 just is. And you know, I guess unfortunately, that that's something that makes it difficult for us to justify inclusion. Maybe that's not the same for other for other uh, managers or so, sorry, other other allocators. But for us, it really is important. Uh, we just can't afford to. To, to to the risk of, of allocating to managers that don't have that capital. You know, that being said, we we do try and engage with the market uh, and all the new managers, whether, you know, we, we might not be the ones that, that allocate to them, but we still need to know who, who's around uh, and, and monitor the track record, but but it is important to us. Uh-huh. Yeah, Pres- presumably, if nothing else, you, you have a responsibility to your investors, as you say, to have the best coming to the panel and that's not going to be a static thing over time yeah no it, it isn't it isn't it it does it's it we try and keep the panel relatively stable and um, we don't like to change it frequently for a number of reasons so you know to get onto the panels it's pretty pretty difficult and you know we have a very robust monitoring process to when we think that something may or may not need to come off panel and um, so that's 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 a a lot of the, a lot of my job and my team's job is is doing just that. Um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's quite a process. Yeah, yeah, and I, I would assume that 
in some sense, if you're making this is a long, you know, you're making long term investments. If you're making the right decision in the first place about someone coming onto the panel, you would expect them to be there for some time. And my guess is, unless they screw up operationally and explode or something, even if they're not doing terribly well, it's going to take a little bit of time before that becomes clear. Yeah, that's that's true. But so you know how we do it is we we have a, a certain number of KPIs that we monitor, and we have you know I guess SLAs with managers to ensure that we have a certain level of engagement, and we also you know we try and be pretty active with managers. So if we feel that you know things are, are aren't going one way or another. We might engage with them more. We might ask for more frequent app meetings and updates to see, you know, where with what the trend is. It wouldn't be the right thing to do for a number of reasons to just chop and change for one particular issue. Rather, you know, where we increase the monitoring, we might set, you know, expectations of to how to get over that particular concern or where we'd like, you know, if, if this doesn't happen, then the next step would be this, or it's, it is a large part of what we do is, is, is engaging with managers one that, once they're on panel and, and also, you know, with other managers that might potentially come onto panel, we'll work with them, you know, for, you know, some you know, months and, you know, more than a year in some instances where we would, we would start that process, you know, and outline things that we feel need to be addressed before we consider anyone to come to panel. So when they are on panel, we've already, you know, looked at these managers for for a long period of time beforehand, before they can even come onto the panel. And and when we take a recommendation to our to you know to our, we have a, a dedicated investment committee to the space, they're already familiar with it, and they already know the manager, they already know the track record. And really, when we put them onto panel, it's kind of you know the last tick, the last box to tick. We we've already done everything. We've already you know got the the processes that we think will be in place once they're on panel. So that's 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 kind of how we operate, and and again, you know, when they when you know when we do engage with them and they don't meet certain milestones or they do mess up and it's, and it's cumulative, we will make sure we, we remove them from the panel before anything significant happens. So, for example, you know, team changes are a, are a big red flag for us because going back to what we mentioned or when I mentioned about when we select a team, we want to see stability, and not to say that if someone leaves, we take them straight away, but if there's a significant leave and there's no there's no real reason or justification for it, that's something that we would you know raise and and monitor and you know to prevent the risk that that you know something more catastrophic could happen down the line. So we we try and be pretty uh, proactive in that regard to ensure that no kind of you know explosions as it was I guess happen across <laughs> the portfolio. Yes, yes, it, it, it can happen, but yeah, you don't really want that. So thinking about a, a panel generally, do you have an idea or a set number of people or firms or products that you want on a specific panel? Do you just sort of say, okay, we've got criteria, whoever meets it is on it. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, so I think it goes back to you know, if we take it back to first principles, what what ultimately what we want to do is offer the best products to our clients. More specifically, we don't have a set number that we want on panel. You know, there's no low or high number, but we but what we do need to ensure is, you know, so I guess would we be comfortable with two EIS managers if they were the only two quality EIS managers in the market? Probably yes. But you know, within reason we do want to ensure that we get diversification. Uh, or we allow the ability for investors to get diversification across across managers. Because so the first thing is, is is quality and making sure that they meet you know our criteria that that we outlined at the beginning. 
you know, because some of the clients are not supposed to allocate large amounts of capital, and we want to ensure that they don't get mass, you know, overly exposed to one manager. So we want to ensure that they can diversify across managers for once, for one part, but also, so that's across the panel. That, but then within product, we also want to ensure that there's diversification within those products, so that we want managers themselves to have, um, or for, I'm thinking about EIS here, to you know offer a relatively, you know, a reasonable amount of diversification within the product. So across the whole panel, if they were to allocate to all of the EIS managers, they would get individual exposure to a, a large amount of actual underlying companies. That's important. And then also, you know, if we can, and this is maybe more of a nice to have, but something we would definitely consider is the strategy diversification. Now, we mentioned there's homogeneity in that sense, but we can get some diversification in the sense of the types of companies, stages of companies, and those kinds of things. For VCTs, you know, as you are acutely aware, that that's that's more seasonal, and you know, it's dependent on a lot on what's open at the time. You know, we'd be comfortable to not have any VCTs on panel through the year if there were if there weren't any quality VCTs fundraising. So what we do try and do is get visibility from managers. You know, we we I guess we have a regular set of panel of VCT managers that we worked with previously, and that we know are established and and are well regarded. And we you know we'll try and work with them to see when they're going to be fundraising. You know, the size of fundraising, try and manage that process so that we can always have something on the panel. Presumably, that's been a big a big challenge this year because we see you know I mean at the time of recording, Mobius came out last week and disappeared in twenty four hours. And we've seen several other offers go very quickly. It is a big challenge for us. It's a very big challenge for us. Um, we've got a pretty robust process to get a panel onto, I'm sorry, get a VC onto panel in any event. You know, it has to go through a whole governance process, which includes getting third party due diligence from managers on the offer. We have to take it to our investment committee. We do our best to get all that done up front so that when it does come to market, we're prepared for it. But But given the pace, to your point of fundraising, it means that, you know, some VCTs which would have been open probably until, uh, you know, March and 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 prior years have closed in, in in two weeks, two three weeks. It is a challenge for us, and it's something we we are we really want to think about because there's been some developments, I guess, you know, technological developments of the ability to actually get into VCTs. You know, there's there's competition from execution only brokers. VCTs as an asset class have become very popular, and yeah, this combination of factors has made it really difficult for us to to well, that's a, it's just been a it's been a headwind we needed to deal with, um, and I think it's something we're constantly thinking about how we can improve that process and make it easier for for our, our investors to get into these VCTs. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's definitely a, a nuance there. Yeah, and does that mean that you're putting your panel together in terms of diversification? You're actually thinking about okay, this this company usually raises in September October. This company you or this manager usually raises January, February, and that might be a better composition of panel than two two managers that raise in January, February. Yeah, yeah, we 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 definitely try and ensure that there's capacity, you know, through the fundraising se- season. And I guess over the years, it, you know, it's, it all gravitated towards the end of summer till till now, and it's it's less. Less opening after the tax year. There are a couple of VCs that aren't open after the tax year, but yes, it's we definitely consider pre-Christmas, I guess, post-Christmas as, as the two buckets, I guess, as it was. And we're always trying to ensure that there's capacity 
pre-Christmas of good managers and capacity post-Christmas of good managers. If if it happens that all those quality managers fill up, we would be very reluctant to just add a VCT to the panel for the sake of, of having capacity because we don't want to you know, expose our investors to a subpar investment. That's not that's not the role that we're trying to play. So, you know, this year there's there's you know could be a chance that that there'll be much less capacity towards the end of the tax year than there has been in previous years. Uh, I mean, presumably you see the same seasonality that the rest of the market does in terms of the, you know now, in terms of you know we're recording at the end of January, January, February, March is sort of the peak selling time for these products. Yeah, exa- yeah, exactly. We're facing the same the same constraints. It's just that. The volumes that we that we kind of writing are, are just much larger. Some of these fundraisers, we take up a lot of the capacity just as a firm, and so I think it just speaks to the, the demand there's been this year for, for these VCTs. And I don't know if it's because there's pent up demand or you know performance has been really good over the past year. You know, it's difficult to say what what or, or, or maybe people are making a lot more money this year than last year. I don't know, but there's. It's definitely demand for it. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the, the chat I hear is, is a mixture of things. So I think there is this pent up demand where pe- in twenty twenty people sat on their hands for a while, and now then they don't need to sit in their hands, so they're willing to solve investors' capital. They probably didn't take the big holiday in twenty twenty that they might or twenty twenty one that they might have either. And that might mean an extra few thousand pounds. Um, yeah. or in some of the clients' cases, tens of thousands of pounds that you know this that's there for investing. I hope there's not performance chasing. I I agree. I mean I, I think you know if I look out um some of the I mean Mobius is a good example, the dividend yield that that VCT's been paying is extraordinary. Um, and I'm not saying that it can't maintain that, but but there's you know it's probably going to be harder to maintain it than not over the coming months, and 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 you know hopefully that they can can maintain their performance. But but yeah, I, I agree. I hope that hopefully it, it isn't that case. I also think just just to add it, it's I feel that um, this is more anecdotal than anything, but yeah, <laughs> venture as an asset class seems to have you know the visibility of it and interest in it, and private markets in general has attracted you know, a lot of interest. That maybe it hadn't previously, and you know you see the likes of you know Moonfair and these other platforms that people are trying to bring private markets to retail clients, and VCTs are are a relatively easy way to get into that. And I, I do wonder if that's you know it's been a good drive for the for the industry in general and interest in in these types of products. Yeah, I I, I suspect there's a sec- that there's kind of an underlying secular trend that I think has been there for a while. Maybe it has been accelerated. I mean, certainly I think the UK has been behind the US on this, and obviously you've got Silicon Valley and all that ecosphere there. But the UK has been sort of slowly catching up, I guess. So you know, maybe there is. I mean, it may well be simply a fact that, you know, eventually if people are only going to get half percent of the bank account, eventually they give up and say, well, I'm going to do something else with it. Yeah, no, f- fair enough. I, I do I do agree with you on the point that people have, and, you know, I think bonuses and some of the performance of specifically, you know, financial companies were pretty good, better than people might have expected. So I think there's maybe a bit more money around than people had, had hoped. And, and, you know, these are tax efficient vehicles, so... Attractive to the statistic. Yes, yes, and, and they're very aware of them. So, yeah, exactly. 
So, so thinking about you, you, you mentioned there yield on VCTs. Does yield figure in your decision on investing? Because presumably, some there's an element of some people are getting these for income, and some people are buying these as capital return products. It's a it is a consideration. It's I wouldn't say it's primary. Um, I mean, clearly, you know, clearly, you know, tax free dividends are an attractive proposition. But you know it's difficult to to forecast if a VCT will maintain yield you know going forward, and you know there are some VCTs. I guess Unicorn is probably a good example where they they don't have a particularly high excuse me yield, but but they do have a pretty good you know approach to capital appreciation, and I think that's the whole point of having a panel where you can offer you can you know let the investor decide. Most VCTs you know I guess target around a five percent yield. And so, you know, it's a consideration. I, I, I couldn't say that it's one thing. It's something that's definitely ruled a VCT out or, 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 or made it particularly attractive. Yeah, it's there and it's good. I think what's, 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 what's perhaps even more important than that is, is the buyback mechanism that that's that the VCTs offer, because you know a lot of VCTs are are, are put forward as, you know, well they are traded on the on the main market or on the stock exchange, but but the liqui- actual liquidity in them on the secondary market is is not great. And, That's and a so, statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's 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 basically non-existent, I guess. And so, you know, investors need a need a route to exit, and that is is a buyback. And um, and so, you know, that is probably much more important for us because that that is the route to exit and. The more that we allocate capital to VCTs, the more we need to consider that um, down the line. And I think something we were working on and considering actively because the market as well, the broken market for VCTs is not that, well, it's pretty pretty small as well. And so um, generally we, we we just want, you know, to see a track record of, of these managers having undertaken buybacks and the willingness to to continue that process. Um, so that that's important. Yeah, and, and that's, it seems to me that shouldn't be that high a benchmark in some ways, because if if I look at the amount of buybacks that most VCTs are doing, it's not that high relative net assets. So I can understand the way they're concerned about people leaving, but but yeah, well, it's, it's, I guess it's more it's more the fact that I mean, who's actually doing the buybacks? There's only a handful of brokers that are doing them, and you know, there's I guess the tail risk is that you know we have another COVID. Or we have some other event where they suspend the buybacks, or uh, there's a material, you know, the fundraising is particularly low one year, or they have a number of failures, and then liquidity dries up in the VCT, you know, and the ability to carry out the buybacks might be constrained. I think now with with the markets flush with cash, you know, maybe it's not a concern, but but it's, it can be, I guess, and it's a tail risk that that we should consider. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at this, are you looking at this over an extended period? in the past and not just sort of here's the last one or two years, but he's going back five or 10 years. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of that. And also, you know, an explicit, explicit discussion as part of our due diligence process about their policy and expectations for the policy. And if possible, if it's in the, you know, it's, it's, it's up to the board ultimately, but the fact that, you know, that, that they've done it historically, that they've forecast the ability to undertake them going forward. So a lot of the, you know, they would have accounted for that in the cash flow uh, modeling. Um, and that's, you know, they acknowledge that if they work with us, that that would be a key consideration for us. So, you know, if they work with us and all of a sudden they, they stop it, they stop their policy, it's unlikely that they you know, the struggle, I guess, to, to, to get back to pounds. So it's something, you know, we'd, we'd work with them to ensure that, that, that they do it. We can. 
you know, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Presumably, that, yeah, as best they can, you always have that. Each company's got an independent board who may or may not change their mind. Um, so one thing that I'm sure a lot of advisors or particularly compliance people might think about is that in SJP, you have the partners and the partners are, they're not independent. You know, are they, are they self-employed, I think, from memory? Well, I couldn't tell you the exact uh, All right. Um, but I, I think one thing that compliance people worry about when they do things like they create a panel is that how do you keep the partners or the, or the advisors on panel? If they say, uh, yeah, well, Luke, Luke's really key on this, but I, my mate likes something else. Yeah, there's a, there's a pretty strict advice framework that partners need to follow um, in order to advise products in the space. And I think that's, you know, that's the benefit of working with a firm of our size is that we have a significant resource overlooking these products. And so, sure, they're, they're constrained to the panel, but it would be, it wouldn't make sense to to advise on something not off panel because as part of our process, we do consider all products in the market and have a, a strong governance structure around it. So it, it's an it's an every partner's benefit to use our panel for, for the due diligence that we do. You know, we have quite a you know stringent advice framework that partners need to take to ensure that they do offer only offer products from our panel. And and yeah, we do get some pushback from that. But we have the the correct framework and governance and you know in place to ensure that that is maintained. So you know I can't speak for other IFAs, other other wealth managers how they would manage that process. But I I, I know from our perspective there is a very well defined, documented advice framework uh, that needs to be followed in order to advise these products. Which which I you know I think is the right thing. These are these are high risk products that that, that you know only suitable to to particular clients. So I think it's mm-hmm. you know reasonable approach to take. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the recent areas of of sort of growth of demand or or growth of of diligence is ESG. And I know from speaking to a couple of managers that SJP has been looking hard at ESG because they've been hinting about what the ones who've got good feedback, obviously, are telling me how they've got good (laughs) feedback from SJP. (laughs) How, How are you looking at ESG and how is that figuring either in your product or panel selection at the moment? Yeah, I mean, ESG is clearly, it's a big drive across the whole SJP investment proposition, not just in our in our space, but I think clearly other areas of our investment proposition have are, are more advanced for, for I guess obvious reasons. We we are working with consultants to develop a framework to with the, with which to examine the space. It's something that you know it, it's it's in the near term. We 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 will look to to work with managers to assess. I guess the baseline in the space. I think you know it, it, we, we need to recognise that these are much smaller managers operating in, in a different area of the market, and so we, what we want to try and do is, is understand the baseline of where everyone sits, and then use that to work. You know, try, try and use our influence to drive managers to improve and work towards a certain kind of outset. At the moment, it's not a core collection selection criteria for our panel, so it, it's not something that determines it. And, and at the moment, we're just determining. Where Ryan sits, but eventually, over you know, and you know, I don't want to put a time frame on it, but it will become a factor when we consider managers in the space because it's the way that SJP is going and it's, and it's the right thing to do. Um, there, are, you know, I guess you're probably aware there are a couple of initiatives in the venture space to, mm-hmm. to develop an ESG framework. I think there are quite a few actually at the, at the moment. Well, I, I think there's two that managers in our sector seem to have coalesced around about. And I know that we at Hardman have sort of 
linked up with some people doing a third sort of an, an, an impact as opposed to ESG. Yeah. But yeah. but yeah, yeah, it's gaining traction. I mean, it's you know we, we get a lot of questions on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's there's definitely interest in it, and I think managers recognise that. I think what it, what what, what we not get concerned about, but what's obvious to us, I guess, is it's not so much greenwashing, but you know, we've got to be careful where managers might do something as as, as simple as taking the um, UNPR, sorry, not UNPR, the, the SDGs, and then mapping their portfolio company to them, and then and then using that as a basis to to illustrate their ESG credentials, which is really light touch, I think, and, and not necessarily the most robust approach, but at least as it is acknowledgement of it and there's consideration for it and hopefully we can work uh, and use our influence to, to better the the outputs uh, you know perhaps along with some of the other initiatives that are that are going, mm-hmm. going ahead yeah I, I, th- I think the mapping to sdgs is understandable and and I, I and certainly i think to your point it's definitely a start what i hear quite a few advisors are actually using that as a framework to engage with investors and their clients to sort of say okay here's the sdgs you know which of these interest you um mm. so i can mm. understand perhaps managers using that themselves to say hey okay so you know the danger of course is one of the sdgs is about job development which everybody in our area sort of complies with anyway. well exactly every every company I, I would have thought can map to an, an sdg and so with a limit, you know, of course, but but you know, I'm sure you could find a way, and that's what I guess I think we're on the same page. It's it's it shouldn't be used as a marketing tool, to be used as a, you know, should be integrated into their process, you know, in, in a first first prize. So I think work to be done, but but definitely, yeah, people are thinking about it. Yeah, I'm very very much agreeing with you. It's, from what I've seen, good, you know, we're we're at the good start, but it's definitely work in progress. So what we like to do now is move to our standard questions. Obviously, as you're not a manager, we won't ask you all of them. So we'll throw these at you and we'll get your thoughts. So tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. Yeah, I've been, I've been giving it this <laughs> some thought, I guess. Probably, putting the context of the space, I guess, failure to consider the level of, of indebtedness that some venture companies have taken on and the impact that this has had on some portfolio companies. And I think what we've done is is now actively uh, asking for more information on this for managers to understand, because I think there've been quite a few schemes and through the course of the last two years where companies might have taken on a bit of debt and maybe more debt than, than they can handle. And so there have been instances where companies have failed um, because of it. And it's, it's something that, that we've learned to become more aware of, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, venture debt is or can be challenged. I, I, I think I've seen a few times where it's kind of used as a last resort bridging. Okay, this, this might get them to the, the famous bridge to nowhere, as it were, where it's like, okay, it's a last resort. Yeah, it's it's not, a, you know, I'm not saying it's, it's the source of all evil, but it's just something to be aware of and, and monitor, I guess, is, is all I'm really saying. Yeah, as, as someone who is also involved in a, in a debt product to venture companies, I'm, I can't say too much against <laughs> it. So the EIS and VCD industry in which work is great in many ways, but it's not perfect. What would you like to change about it? I think I'd like to see some of the limits increased. So, you know, both in the amount that companies can receive under the schemes and also the amount that individuals can invest. 
And I think we've seen, in, in, from what I've noticed, there a lot, you know, not a lot, but a number of larger managers in the space creating follow-on funds because a lot of these companies have reached the limits. I, I think it would be beneficial to, to investors if they're able to follow, the, follow their money for a bit longer as the companies grow. So, you know, obviously, of course, I hope that the, the schemes remain in place, but if they could re-examine the, some of those limits, I think that would be beneficial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they have been static for some time, and we've definitely seen, I mean, we spoke about once or twice about the growth in valuations, which for some, you know, to get the same sort of equity is just going to cost you more money these days than it used to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yes, the seed limit is the most popular one. <laughs> um, so, as listeners know, I'm an avid reader. So, do you want to tell us about a book that you like and would recommend to people? Sure. There's a it's a book called Bad Blood. It's about Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Yes, the newly convicted Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I just I think it's such a fascinating insight into I guess you know Silicon Valley and 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 venture investing and how really 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 well established and experienced investors still got it wrong. And I think it just it's just a stark reminder that you know there's, there's as boring as due diligence can be. It's got to be done. And, you know, you've got to see the word for the trees and, you know, that for one, but also it's just a fascinating story. Interestingly, I'm seeing a bit of publicity about Silicon Valley saying it's they're kind of distancing themselves, saying it wasn't one of ours because, um, <laughs> and, 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 and not entirely unreasonably, because what they're saying is that if you look at professional health investors, they weren't invested in it because they mm, went along mm, to mm. Theranos and said, hey, you know, we want to invest, shows your tech. And she said, no. And they went, well, in that case, we won't invest. Fair enough. No, that's a, that's a fair point, I guess. I, it just must happen more often than we, than we think, I guess, is, is you know, is, is the thing. This is just a big, somehow this managed to just get so big. Yeah, I, I think there's a few things out there that on a smaller scale that we, we kind of miss. I know there was another manager in our area that had some diamonds that were sort of mislaid between here and the Ukraine. <laughs> um, and one side's lying and you couldn't tell which, which is very unfortunate. But but you get without, without knowing the circumstances and, you know, there's, there's clearly a fraud in there somewhere, but yeah. I don't know to what extent the manager was to blame. Because I can't tell, yeah. but managers inevitably aren't going to shout about things like that, really, are they? Absolutely, yeah, exactly. You never find out until it's until it's the last moment. Yeah, yeah, but but no, it, it, it's 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 a fantastic book, so I would thoroughly recommend it. And yeah, you can now, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's going to be a second version with 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 an extra chapter about the trial think, or something. I think they're making a movie. I thought, but. Um... Yeah, we'll find out. We'll find out soon, yes. Yes, everyone in Venture Insurance will be off to see that. <laughs> what do you wish you knew when you start looking at venture capital that you know now? I think, yeah, just to reiterate the point, the importance of, of an extra track record and the ability for managers to have demonstrated the ability to execute the strategy. You know, glossy presentations and and fancy uh, brochures can go one way, but but really... You need to see you know, the proof is in the eating, I guess, as it was. Uh, and, and I think that's just something that's just, yeah, really important to know from the outset, from my perspective. Uh-huh. All right. So that, I mean, that does raise a question. You mentioned about new entrants and the hard to get into SJP generally. It, you know, what chance does new entrants have in the sense of they've got no evidence of execution, usually not all the time. 
and it's going to take just take a long time to to get that. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, just you know, we're not the only funder in the market. Uh, there, there are others out there, and, and as as harsh as it sounds, uh, our responsibility is is to investors first and managers. Yeah, it's 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 tough, um, and and I you know I uh, envy envy them, but but you know that's the nature of the beast, unfortunately. So yeah, it is, it's difficult. It's difficult. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's it's always difficult getting any new business off the ground. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, I usually at this point I say, if anyone would like to know more information about SJP2, where do they go? <laughs> well, I, I guess it's a simple Google will, will find, uh, will, will take you that way. But um, yeah, we'll, I we'll think post a link in the show notes to their yeah. website for what it's worth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure too many listeners are. Well, we never know. Maybe we do have listeners who want to come to SJP. Yep. Uh, I mean, there's, there's, you know, I guess the list of, of your local partner. I'm sure that they're yeah, easily available online. Great. So, um, thank you very much for coming on today, Luke. That's been absolutely, absolutely fantastic. Great. Well, thank you very much, Brad. Appreciate it. So, we hope you enjoyed that. If you want to find out more, the show notes will be available at hardmanco.com forward slash podcast. If you like, really like what you heard, you can give us a review with lots of stars on iTunes. You can subscribe to this through iTunes, Spotify, and all good podcast players. If you want to give us feedback or find out more about what we're doing, then you can send us an email at inquiries at harmonico.com. Thanks very much for listening and hope to hear from you soon.